The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's Word. In our first week of Ephesians in this study, just in, in the first week in January, we shared with you the basic structure of what we'd be seeing this year in the book of Ephesians, which is broken up into two different sides of the same coin. Chapters 1 through 3, the first side of the coin, is all about what God has done for us through Jesus. It is all about this good news, the grace of God that has lavished upon us by God. It's all about the gospel and who we are and what we have in Christ, in the riches of in heaven. And chapter 4 to 6 kind of rounds out the other side of this coin, which is about how we are to live in light of all that we have learned that God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And so as we embrace the grace of God and, and rest in it, believe in it, it fills our hearts and our innermost being and strengthens us and then overflows into a life that is lived worthy of that calling. And as we learn, the order of such things is so important. It's so important that chapter 4 to 6 isn't first. It's so important that 1 through 3 is first. If you get the order wrong, then you and I might miss grasping what it really means to be a Christian and what, it, what Christianity really is. We do not live in obedience first and then enjoy the blessing of the gospel. We receive the blessing of God's grace and the overflow of such a gift leads to a transformed life that obeys and honors God. And so we say that you are not what you do, but what Jesus has done. You are not what has been done to you, but what Jesus has done for you. And here's the simple transition marker if you want to pay attention in the scripture here. Uh, the last word in chapter 3 See, the two sides of the coin is 1 through 3 and then 4 to 6, and so we start a new section today. The last word in chapter 3 is the word amen. This is how you end a thought. It's how you end a prayer. 
It's usually the end of Paul's letters, but here it appears right in the middle. And then the first word in chapter 4 is, therefore. And so the word therefore is this hinge of the whole letter. Paul's wanting to show us how the gospel reshapes and reorients all of our life. He says to, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It doesn't mean that we, uh, that we walk in a manner uh, that, is, that God desires and that earns our place in the life of God. It's not that we, we earn the gospel through a good life. The opposite is actually true. It's God's grace that produces a new lifestyle. And we are to live lives reflecting of what he has done for us. I say to my children, you are a rare man, so tell the truth. And so in that sense, being honest does not make them a part of my family and our family. But being honest instead is, is, it, is an example of how they are a part of the family. It's a, it's a demonstration, a manifestation of their identity as part of this family. This is what we value. This is what we, we do. This is what we believe. And so that's what Paul is saying now, to act like you're in the family. Not, don't be, live a good life to be a part of the family, but because you are in this family. You guys watching the Olympics, I expect? Yeah? Uh, every athlete, I see they do something the same. doesn't matter what country they are from. They do the same thing. Every athlete, as they stand on the top of the mountain or as they approach the half pipe or they look at the downhill, even the ice skating rink, as they come out into the center of the rink, they all do one thing. You know, they're pumped up right before they go out. They're smiling. They're, they're high-fiving. They're, they're fist-pumping. They are loosening their muscles. And then they take their position... And they all do one thing. They do a deep breath. And then they go for it. You see, they, they come out, they prepare. And this is what Paul is doing. He has spent three chapters pumping us up, telling us about all that we have, surveying the beauty of all that is ours in Christ. And then he takes a deep breath and says, okay, let's get to work. Let's do this. Let's show you how this now translates into a life that is honoring to God. And so now he is saying, let's do this. Let's talk about your life. The book of Ephesians doesn't end in chapter 3. The, the, the glory of the gospel and what it means to be a Christian is not just in what we believe. It's not just in what we know. It's not just in the doctrines that we ascribe to. It is, it is it, it, those things transforming our lives. And Paul continues now. And it takes him three chapters to cover the multitude of areas that, that are a result of an overflow of the gospel change in our heart. And where does he start? Where does he want to start talking about our lives and how the gospel changes us? He wants to talk about the relationship between the Christian and the church. He wants to talk about your church life. Came on a good week. All right? No excuse. You better be here next week, too, as an example of what you learned today. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but here's where it is. Paul says, okay, let's start talking about your life. If you truly believe the gospel, let's talk about your life. And I want to talk about your, your church life. I want to talk about how it affects your relationship with other Christians. A central element in the, in the lifestyle of a person who knows the love of Jesus is their relationship with the body of Christ, his church. We say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. 
is an oxymoron. It's something we don't see in Scripture. It's, a, it's an example of a life that is inconsistent with what it really means to know and love Jesus. To know Jesus, to love Him, to trust in Him, is to love His body, His, His church, which He calls the body of Christ. And so if Jesus brings people from all over the place and adopts all people from all different lifestyles and walks of life, and He forms all of those people into one unified family under the love of Christ, don't you think that the relationship between those people within that family is something really special? If Jesus brings people from all over that have no business of living life together, but their unity with Jesus, don't you think those relationships would be really special and meaningful? It ought to be, and Paul says it ought to be, and probably even to a greater degree than you and I imagine or even practice. Nowhere in all the scripture do we see the word one, the word one, O-N-E, in more frequency than we do right here. Seven times in three verses. Paul is hitting a theme really hard. The relationship between the Christian and the church is one of commitment and unity and sacrificial love that results in worship, joy, and spiritual growth. I'm guessing you have stories. I'm guessing you have stories about how this is easier said than done. I have a new one every morning before breakfast. Stories, stories about how it is, how I want that. I believe this is what the Bible talks about, this relationship with others in the church that is really uh, one of commitment and sacrificial love and unity where we are growing together, where my faith is being stronger because you are in my life and your faith is growing stronger because I am in your life and we don't quit on each other and we keep pursuing one another and we have a long-suffering relationship we put up with one another. I know that's what the Bible talks about, but we're talking about real life here. We're talking about people. How many of us have stories about how our expectations and the Bible's expectation of the life of Christians with one another is very different from our real life circumstances? Can I just get an amen? Okay. Paul, the theologian, is also Paul the pastor. Paul, the sympathetic, compassionate comforter. He knows this. He identifies with his brothers and sisters in the church, and he says, I know there's a struggle. I know there's struggle. I know there's conflict. I know it's within the church. Remember, I'm in prison as a result of my participation in the church. That's what Paul says. He says it twice here in just as many chapters. He says, remember, I know the struggle. You guys are struggling with one another, but I want you to remember that I am bound in chains that I'm on a cold floor in a dark cell because of my participation in the church. And so Paul is sympathizing. He understands. And then he tells us what we need to hear. He tells us the four-part necessity of every person in the family of God. If you want to have a healthy and faithful relationship with others in the church, you and I need four essential tools in our toolbox. And you know what they are? Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. These are the four essential tools that every Christian needs if we want to live as the Bible has called us to live. If we want to work out all the grace of God in our life and the gospel in our life, and we want to live in community with one another, we need each of these. What a great way to start off a sermon on the relationship between the Christian and the church by Paul saying, this is what you need. 
Our healthy church experience depends on the, the exercise of these four qualities, apart from which we, we won't do well. We won't live out the Bible's call to us as Christians. I remember walking into a classroom at a school years ago, and on the wall was a list of classroom rules. And there's nothing unique about this or strange about it, as most classrooms do have something of this sort, where there's maybe a top ten rules for their students to adhere to. It's common. I wasn't surprised by this, but I was surprised on one of the rules kind of towards the end of the list. You had your standard rules, you know, no running in the classroom, raise your hands to speak, show respect when others are talking. And then further down the list, there was this rule, no throwing paint on other classmates. <laughs> and you know the only reason that that is on the list is because it needs to be, right? You know the reason that's on the list is because it happened and probably happens in, in good frequency. It's the same as what Paul is saying. Why is he saying what you all need if you want to live out God's call for your life as people in the family of God, you need humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love with one another. Why would he even mention this? Because he knows that we need it. We need to be told to be humble. We need to be told by God's word to live in others in a relationship of humility because we are prone to feel self-important and to demean others that are different from us. We need to be told to be humble because we, whether it's a knowledge or a skill or an ability or a perspective in life or a doctrine that we are proficient in, we, in our nature, we are prone to be puffed up with that and to look down on others that are not like us. And Paul says you need to know that humility needs to reign in your heart because you are prone to be proud. We forget that everything that we have is a gift from God. Even the breath of our, in our lungs is a gift from God. We have no right to boast in anything but Christ. So if this is one of the tools, if this is on the list of things that Christians need, it's because he knows that we are not humble, that we are often proud. We need to be told to be gentle because gentleness is not our immediate response to others with whom we have conflict. The opposite of gentleness is roughness. Or to put it another way, to be gentle is to not be irritated with others. To be gentle is to endure discomfort. Yikes, how are you guys doing? How are we doing yet? We're only like two out of four. How are you doing? You passing the test yet? He's having this image of like sandpaper as we live together and there's two sandpapers. We're supposed to, as we rub up against one another, we're supposed to shine each other. We're supposed to sharpen one another. But if you have one sandpaper that is like a very high grit, which means it's really fine, and you have, you have another sandpaper that's really coarse, what happens? What happens when you take those two and rub them together? The one that's really fine gets, gets ripped apart. Holes get in it. The other one kind of eats the other one. Paul is saying... The opposite of gentleness is roughness. It's with those that are different from you, with those whom you disagree with, with those whom you have conflict with. How do you approach them and relate to them? Is it with gentleness or is it putting people in their place? I need to let them know where they're wrong. I need to let them know what they're doing is wrong. And so we come in and we just rip a hole in their life. Paul knows that we need to be gentle. We need to be told to be patient. I'm sorry, it doesn't get better from here. It gets worse. We need to be told to be patient because we are too quick to make judgments. It means to stay in tension. It means to relax in the midst 
of tension. What a word picture here. It is the image of a compound bow. If there are any hunters among us, you know how this works. We know that you can, you can shoot an arrow much further in a bow than you can throw it. And even with a compound bow, you can shoot an arrow up to 300 f- feet, 150 feet per second or something like that. I'm making up numbers right now. So it goes like, like 300 miles an hour. Okay, I think that's true. And what happens is the, the bow, as you pull back the bowstring, all the pressure and the pounds of force are stored in the arms. And so that you can be pulling back a compound bow, you pull back, you're holding 70 pounds in your hands, but it, but it only feels like 20. Because it's storing it in the bow, so that when you release it, all of that force goes out. So Paul is saying, that you need to be in tension, but you need to be in a disposition relaxed within that tension. You need to be able to to live in great tension with people, but be relaxed while you're doing it. The compound bow allows you to relax as you wait to hit your target. As you wait to release, you can hold that posture for a long time. Paul is saying, in the midst of tension, hold that posture. Be patient. Don't be quick to let the arrow fly. What a great picture of how we are to relate with one another, resting in the midst of tension with others. And finally, we need to bear with one another in love. Forbearance, long-suffering, to stick with others, to endure. We need to hear this because we're too quick to give up on others when conflict arises. We ought to have a long-term view with others and their own maturity and progress in the faith. We ought to, to look at people's lives and say, I'm with you for a long time. We give up far too quick. You know, and I explain these four tools so carefully, and Paul mentions them rather quickly, but it's good for us to, to understand these in more depth because as we describe them in detail, it ought to show us not only what tools are in our toolbox for healthy community, but we, we do this to, to be reminded of how God treats us. Because again, Paul is saying, now as a result of all that God has done for you, live this way with others. When we look at humility and gentleness and and patience and long-suffering, we are meant to see how God has been all of those things to us. These these qualities in in a Christian's life are a direct result of how God has treated you and me. Imagine how, com- how much conflict with fellow believers could be avoided and, and even erased simply by keeping a firm sight on these four qualities. If we, when, when we are in, in conflict with others or there's disagreement, imagine if instead of thinking about how we are so different from that person, we started to think about all the ways that God is different from us. And yet he's expressed humility. He humbled himself. And not seeing a quality with God, something to be grasped, even though Jesus Christ himself was, was, was deserving of all the full glory and honor, he became like us. He humbled himself to the point of, of, of being humbled as a man, but also to the point of death on a cross. He's gentle with us. God does not give us what we deserve. God does not treat us in the way that you and I deserve. He's patient. He holds that bow back. He is, it says he is, he is quick to mercy and slow to anger. And eventually that bow is released to pierce the heart of his own son. God is long-suffering. 
He endures the our sins. He endures our neglect. He endures our disobedience. We are different from him. He endures our ignorance multiple times a day, more than you can even imagine. If you knew what it truly cost Christ on the cross, you would be, be humbled. You'd be gentled. You would be patient with others. You would endure the long haul with those who wrong you. And so the point here is that we are to see all that God has done for us and those, that disposition that should overflow, it should overflow in a reaction to them. To the degree we see humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance in our lives is directly related to the depth of the gospel work on our inner being. Would you think of that for a moment? To the degree that we see humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance flowing out into the lives of others is directly related to our understanding of God's work in our heart, the gospel's work in our heart, and what we need and what we deserve. And when we grasp these qualities of God's grace, we, see, we seek to apply them in our relationships. When we have these four tools and we see all that God has done, we want to do it more. We want to express these things, and some wonderful things happen when we do. That's what Paul gets into in this letter. As he, as he launches into, okay, these four tools in your toolbox, as a result of what God has done for you, Here's what happens when we live that way, and it is a beautiful picture. He says we will be eager to maintain unity. We'll be eager to maintain unity. Do you notice the tempo here? And I want to point out, which is really marvelous, the tempo of Paul's speed and, and pace in this passage. When it comes to addressing conflict with others, he says, go slow, take it easy. Be patient, be gentle, have the long view. But do you see, he says, remember how God's been patient with you. Take a step back, you know, so to speak. He says, kind of look at the log in your own eye before you inspect the speck in the other person's eye. Remember how God's been gentle with you, patient, long-suffering. Remember how he's been slow to anger. But then when it comes to going out of your way to bless somebody, Paul says, go quick, go fast, get after it, jump out the gate, go and do it now. Do you see this? This disposition of these two speeds. When we're looking at the sins of others, Paul says, take it easy. But when we're looking for opportunity to be a blessing, Paul says, go quick. Go, at it af- go after it. He says we should be eager. We should be stirred up with zeal to maintain unity, to pursue others. When someone needs correction, Paul holds us back. He tells us first to consider God's grace for us. He is that friend behind us saying, take it easy, man. He's holding us back and says, don't fight. Be patient. Remember how God has loved you. And then when when someone needs encouragement and support, Paul pushes us forward, pushes us off the cliff and says, what are you waiting for? Look at what God has done for you. One of the most destructive aspects of living in real community with others is how we speak of each other and how we handle conflict. There's no doubt about it. One of the most destructive aspects is how we we fail to express these four qualities as a result of what God has done for our life. And maybe it's because we fail to truly dwell deeply on all that God has done for us. We fail to see God's gentleness and humility and patience and long-suffering for us. We fail to realize that we are the ones needing of God's grace. Paul helps us to develop a a sense of the importance of this unity that we have in Christ by outlining where this unity comes from. Why should we be so excited? 
The, re the reasons for our unity are massive. Jesus has one body. He has one body, and we are it. There is no other body, the body of the church, the big C, his, his, his people, his, his elected people from eternity past, from, 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 from all of history, and all that will come, his one people that Jesus died for to redeem, the people that he died for and shed his blood for, this is, these are his people, that's it. There's no other body. If we can't do it here, there's no hope anywhere else. There isn't another place to go. There isn't another kind of community where we can, where, where, the, where, where Christ will accomplish the maturity that he seeks to accomplish in us. The context for it, the main and only context for it is the body of Christ. We have one spirit that dwells in all of us. Think about that. At, a, at the deepest level of our being, what I have in common with you and you with me is that within each of us is the same spirit of God that raised Jesus from the grave lives in you and me. And there's only one. And it's amazing that we share that, that we share such wonderful connection. We have one hope. There is no other hope. It is Christ. There is one Lord, one faith that we profess together. We've received the same sign of the blessing of God's grace, baptism. There's one God and one Father in heaven. Could there be a more basic and simple and all-embracing reason to pursue one another in unity than all of these things that Paul has laid out for us? Look at what we have together. How could we be in discord and disunity with one another. And yet, our unity, even though we pursue unity, is not uniformity. We are one, but we are, 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 are all not the same. As Paul continues on, nor do we have the same function within this community. We are all one, and we are to pursue unity together, but that doesn't mean we are the same. It's not a cookie-cutter church. The church consists of lots of different kinds of people and experiences and spiritual gifts and functions and roles, as Paul lays out. The church is a big family with many members, and this is to our benefit. When we grasp the grace of God in our life, another, things hap another thing happens. It overflows into this. We will work to make others grow. The Bible tells us that when we receive the grace of God and become born again, He gives each of us a special measure of His grace in the form of a spiritual gift so that we can serve Him and one another in a variety of different ways, all for the building up of one another, the building up of Christ's body and for our spiritual maturity. Some teach, some are sent out to plant churches, some are sent to distant people and countries. Some reveal God's word and some comfort and guide God's people. Some lead and others follow. Some encourage and some host. The list is not meant to be exhaustive here, but rather shows us that our unity does not mean that we all do the same thing or in the same way. But whatever we do, it is meant to show us that our purpose is for one another. Our purpose is for our unity and our growth. One of my jobs as a young boy uh, living in northern Kentucky was to wash my neighbor's 1936 Lincoln Town car. Here's a picture of that car. This was his first car that he ever got. And every month I would come over and I would wash this car. He would drive it out of the garage uh, and, and I would wash it. And after I would wash it and dry it 
he would drive it back into the garage where it stayed there until the next time I washed it the next month. And I said, why don't you drive this car? And he says, because it's too beautiful to drive. It's too valuable to drive. And, and it just never made sense to me. It didn't make sense to me. And it doesn't make sense to be gifted by the grace of God with spiritual gifts and to not use it to build up others. It was strange to me and it's strange to Paul. It should be strange to us as Christians to not see ourselves in a connected role with one another, actively working to help others grow. If we are not helping people grow with the gifts and abilities that God has given to us, it's like having a car like that and never driving it. When everyone is putting energy into it, when we're putting our back into the work of ministry, putting elbow grease into the work of ministry, when we put blood, sweat, and tears into it, this is the mission of every Christian. When this word is so wonderful, Paul says, uh, do the work of the ministry. He's, he uses the word, do the energia. It's not Italian, it's ancient Greek. He says, do the energia. You know where you get energy, put energy into it. Blood, sweat, and tears is the mission statement of every Christian. Not just to do something, but to, to encourage one another, to, to be a part of the mutual edification, to help others grow. One of the key qualities of a, of a Christian who loves the church is a sincere and deep concern for the well-being of other people within that body. I mean, a deep concern. I want you to grow in your relationship with Jesus. I want you to mature. I want you to be strengthened. I want you to be comforted. I want you to be uh, sharpened. I hope somebody comes along and does that for you. Paul says, no, if you have the Spirit of God in you, then you have everything that you need to be that encourager for that person, to help sharpen that person. Not every Christian is called to full-time vocational ministry, but every Christian is called to do the work of the ministry. The ministry work includes your job, your family, your church, your community. It is about using what God has given to you in a special manifestation of God's grace in the form of a spiritual gift to love and serve people in your life on behalf of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you are gifted to serve the body of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Paul helps us to develop a, a vision for our relationship with the church. And within this short passage is found a very practical and gospel-fueled framework for our involvement in the church. And, and let me close with just a few of these applications. If you take notes, this is a good time to maybe write a few of these down. Okay, what does this look like? As, as I summarize some small parts of, of this passage of how do we do that then? What does it look like? What mindset? Give me a framework for being a Christian in the church. And here's the first one. One is that we are fueled primarily by a desire to honor Jesus. Why do we do anything? Why do we serve? Why do we exert ourselves? Why do we put the blood, sweat, and tears in? You know, there's lots of reasons that churches might use. There's a lot of reasons that you've been taught in, and there's a lot of reasons why you might be motivated to do something. Well, there's no such thing as a free lunch. If you want to be a part, you've got to put in your weight, right? You've got to carry your own weight. You have to do your work. Well, we, we need you, and we're suffering, and, and everybody's got to help. People will get to see you if you serve, and they will honor you. Maybe that's a reason that many do it. Jesus came to serve. What makes you think you don't have to do that, right? So sometimes that's the idea. Well, we just have to do it. It's the right thing to do. But whatever reasons you have to serve others, our main reason should always be the honor of Jesus. We do it all for Christ. 
who loves his church and gave himself for her. When we understand that everything we have from God because of how Je- is, is because of how Jesus served us in the greatest way possible by doing the very thing that we could not do for ourselves, by giving his life for us, there's no greater promotion needed. There's, there's no greater reason that we would serve. We don't need to be promoted. We don't need to be looked at as, as valuable in the eyes of others. We don't need to gain friends. We don't need to, to just to keep the lights on in the church. The main reason is, is for the honor of Christ. We have everything in Christ. So we, we serve out of, out of a disposition of love for him. Our motive shifts from seeking honor of men and doing things for others to like us. It shifts to honoring Jesus. Our motive is for Christ to be honored. And he loves his church. He loves Holy Cross Church. He loves his global church. When we love his bride, he's blessed by it. When we love, think about that. This is because his church is his bride for whom he died. When we love his bride, it's a great honor to Jesus. Whatever reasons we serve, our main reasons should always be his honor. Number two, we acknowledge that sometimes the most significant ways to serve are the smallest way. Paul says we work together at its deepest level, even down to our joints, even down to the joints of the body. We attach great significance, don't we, to doing great things for God? You know, I'm waiting for that big fish. I'm waiting for that big service opportunity. I'm waiting for the big thing to really, because I'm really gifted, and I really want to use my gifts in a big way for the church. We work together all the way down to the joints of the body. We want to see the muscle. We want to be the muscle. We want to be the engine and fuel behind uh, great success in the church. And it's not wrong to want to do something great for God's church. And, 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 and whenever God puts something on our heart and then he gives us opportunity, we should do it, even if it is something big. But how, however, we often measure what is significant in the wrong ways. We often measure what is, what is important and significant for God and the church must be something visible and big and impactful in the ways we see it. You know, on more than one occasion, the gospel writers show us how Jesus' closest disciples uh, got this wrong. They fell into temptation for serving in the big ways and arguing about which one's going to do the best thing, which one's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, which one will be at the right hand of Jesus and, and, and being the muscle in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be a servant. And then he takes his outer clothes off and he wraps a towel around his waist and he gets a bucket of water and he begins to wash their feet. He says, let me show you. You want to be great? You have to change the way you view what great is. You want to do something for God? It's often done in the small ways. It's often done in the, the, the insignificant ways. It's often done in the ways that are, that are overlooked and no one ever knows about, but God knows. And it blesses others. Number three, what we see from here is we develop a habit and skill for being able to spot ministry burdens. We're, we are to build up one another as we bear their burdens. The ministry of burden bearing is a vocation of great blessing. And a Christian who develops this skill is a great blessing to the church and honor to God. You know, it's only when we take our eyes off of our own tastes and our own preferences and our own genders, uh, sorry, agendas, <laughs> and genders, <coughs> and biases. It's only when we take our eyes off of those things going on inside us that we can truly have this perspective of being able to spot the burdens of others. 
how can we, how can, you know, we overlook the burdens of others when we're thinking about ourselves. You want to be a help? Do you want to serve others? Stop thinking about yourself. Think less of yourself. God has, has composed the church in such a way, with, with spiritual gifts in such a way, according to his personal, his personal joy and plan, that we would lack, lack nothing when our spiritual gifts are working together. God has arranged the church in such a way that when we work together, you and I would lack nothing. When we utilize these gifts, when we spot the burdens of others and we seek to be a blessing. Fourth, we pursue joy in the midst of headaches. Let me tell you why Costco is great. <laughs> you know, reason number 715, right? Their return policy is amazing. I bring back my car battery when it dies and they give me a new car battery. For this reason, I probably buy way too much because I have this mentality. I go in, I buy something and say, maybe I don't need it, but if I don't like it, I'll just bring it back. You ever do that? So I buy, but I never do. I just keep it. <laughs> too many people view their involvement in the work of ministry in this way. You know, if I, if I, I can always engage in something, I can always serve and volunteer. And if I don't like it, I'll just stop doing it and someone else will do it. Too many people, you know, uh, view their, their work, uh, their involvement in the work of ministry in this way. You know, if, if, if after this sermon or even during this sermon, you feel the Lord's leading and tugging in your heart to engage in loving service in the church for the mutual edification and growth of others, let me save you some time and tell you you're not going to like it. And I'm not supposed to say that. I'm supposed to tell you that you will never be so happy. The greatest way to be happy is to serve. You know, you might go into it that way, but in the midst of exercising your calling to do the work of ministry, you will utter the phrase, this is too much, this is not what I signed up for. And you will see that as a symptom of you being in the wrong place. You will see that then as a symptom of God making a mistake or you making a mistake. When you have struggle in your service to others and it is hard you're going to say, I must have gotten it wrong. Because if this was really an overflow of, my, of God's gospel gift to me, I would love every part of it. Where did you get that idea? Where do we get that idea? It's not from the Bible. Instead of seeing our ministry frustrations as an anomaly to God's plan that we need to get past in order to really find our ministry calling, we ought to be relentless in pursuing joy in the midst of struggle. We ought to be relentless in pursuing joy in the midst of burdens so that we can find our joy not in our circumstance, but in Christ. God, help me in the midst of this struggle to see Jesus, to see everything that I have is in Him, to see that I can be patient and long-suffering, to move from just avoiding a role because it's difficult to seeking and trusting in Jesus with all our doubts, with all our joys, with all our wounds, with all our fears. We ought to see God working in and through us. We should be thrilled to serve knowing that our trials are not wasted. That's the message of the Bible, is that you will have trial, but your trial is never wasted when you do it in faith. How can we have Christian faith in the midst of serving even when it's hard? That's the question, not how can I find a role where I'm always happy and I never get tired? You're not going to find it. But there is something about enduring suffering with joy that sharpens us, that strengthens us, that causes us to look on Christ for our hope 
and others are blessed by it. And lastly, we replace a consumer-driven mentality with a life-together mission out of love in community. Let Costco be great at what they do. And let the church be great at what we do. Don't treat the church like you treat Costco, and don't treat Costco like you treat the church. Those people don't love you. <laughs> they are happy because, because they, they're giving you samples all day. <laughs> they're happy because you're going to buy something. So nothing cripples, nothing cripples a ministry and church as quickly as a mentality that the church exists to manage the comfort and expectations of its participants. Nothing will cripple a church so quickly as to come and say, what have you done for me lately? How will you serve me? How will you bless me? And this evil, it is evil, and it creeps into our hearts when we view the church as like participants in a club rather than Jesus' bound-together people, transformed by his word, and on mission together. So here's the big picture. Those who have been recipients of the grace of God have countless reasons to engage in gospel-fueled, sacrificial service for others. And a desire to see others grow, followed by personal sacrifice, is at the heart of the gospel. This is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus shows us his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How does God show us his love for us? Through personal sacrifice and great concern. I want you to grow. I want you to be redeemed. I want you to be saved. I do not want you to perish. And so I will, I will accomplish all of your redemption through great cost to myself. Now go and do likewise. That is what he tells us. And so we will grow as a result of our, as an overflow of, our, of the grace of God in our hearts, manifested in a deep concern for others, expressed in sacrifice. The gospel is given to us by Jesus. It's preached. It lands in our hearts of its hearers. And we are transformed. And by the fuel of the gospel in our hearts, we're being built up together into maturity. It's a beautiful picture for what God has for us. Let's be that church. Let's pray.